Hey there, it's Martine. This week, we are going to be airing episodes from The Washington Post's latest investigative podcast, Broken Doors. The series focuses on the use of no-knock warrants in the criminal justice system and what happens when accountability fails at every level. The series wrapped up earlier this year. So if you've already listened or are just curious about news that's happened regarding no-knock warrants and the cases the podcast covers, we also have an episode out now that gives listeners a comprehensive update. It aired on Monday, so take a look at that. We'll also put a link to the episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. And now, the third episode of Broken Doors. If you haven't listened to the first two, make sure you do that before listening here. And just a warning, this episode contains explicit language and descriptions of violence. Okay, here's the show. It usually takes just seconds for police to break down someone's door. An entire no-knock raid might last minutes. But for survivors, there's no time limit on the fear they live with each and every day. Can you talk to me about how this has changed your life? Um, yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's changed a lot. Um, I had several nightmares, still do. Sometimes I'll holler and then sometimes I'm trying to like get up because I didn't know what they were going to do, you know, if they could come by here and you know, shoot me out in the yard or, you know, I, I just didn't know. Ricky Keaton's girlfriend, Wanda Stigall, was never named on the search warrant for Ricky's trailer in 2015. But Monroe County Sheriff's deputies took her away in handcuffs while her boyfriend was dying on the floor of their home. When I visited with Wanda, I wasn't surprised when she told me it was too hard to keep living there. She immediately moved back into her childhood home with her sister at age 62. Go right through, yeah, go right through there and there's another door. As Wanda started to show me around, she told me something else. We're in the living room of my house. I had a, the big man chair, I had it right there and that's where I slept and then that's where I sleep now. And where does your, your sister go? She sleeps over there. We sleep in the same room together. She's woke me up several times. Wanda doesn't sleep in a bed because she was in a bed in her last moments with Ricky. That's given me pause so many times. How much this must torment her. She can't fall asleep in a bed. So... She sleeps in a chair in the living room. So many lives have been shattered in this county. And I wanted to know, does anything keep Sheriff Cecil Cantrell up at night? And I wondered the same about the judge, who kept signing warrant after warrant. I'm Jen Abelson, an investigative reporter with The Washington Post, and this is Broken Doors. A series about no-knock warrants, the controversial tactic 
that allows police to force their way into people's homes without warning. I know they didn't have probable cause. Probable cause don't mean shit in Amor, Mississippi. I mean, to sum it up, they shot the wrong person. <laughs> when my colleague Nicole Duca and I started our reporting, I never expected to spend so much time in one place. But there's a lot to learn from what's been going on unchecked in Monroe County, Mississippi. This is a story that's bigger than I imagined about the lasting consequences of no-knock raids and what can happen when an extremely dangerous policing tool ends up being the rule rather than the exception. The deputies who killed Ricky were never charged with any crime. But it took years for Wanda to resolve her criminal case. Even though Wanda wasn't the target of the drug raid, she initially got charged with drug trafficking. And she ended up on probation for possession of between 10 and 30 grams of meth. That's a felony. I wanted to find answers for everyone we've met over the last two episodes. For Wanda. If they had come to the door the next morning at a decent hour, they would probably found Ricky outside. Or if he hadn't been, the only thing they had to do was just knock on the door and he would have went to the door. For Ricky Keaton's daughter, Robbie Gigger. And I wanted to know what kind of lies they were telling. For Benji Edwards. You know, it was like they were uh, uh, robbing people. You know what I'm saying? A police force of, of robbers. And for Stephanie Herring. It was always the bag of money. You know, it was never the bag of dope or what dopey was taken off the streets. It was the money, the money, the money. The only way I could get answers for them was to go to the very top, to the men who had been in charge, and ask them directly about the allegations and information I'd gathered. But before we go on, there's one more piece of my reporting you need to hear. It involves Stephanie, one of the only people I met who filed an official complaint about problems in the sheriff's office. Stephanie told me that deputies tried to intimidate her from speaking out about her time as a confidential informant for the head narcotics officer, Eric Sloan. So in July of 2016, Stephanie was scheduled to give a deposition about everything that happened in the weeks before the raid at Ricky Keaton's house. This means that she would be giving sworn testimony that Deputy Sloan allegedly tried to extort and sexually assault her. But then, just days before the hearing, she's arrested at her home after missing court for some unpaid traffic tickets. You know, you don't have a meeting or be interrogated over a traffic violation. You know, who does that? Have you ever been? You know, you don't. So I knew it was about Eric Sloan. She was kept in the Monroe County Jail for nearly a month, which meant she couldn't attend the deposition. When she eventually testified, she talked about that month-long stay in jail and said several deputies pressured her to change her story about Deputy Sloan. I told him no. I was like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to help you. You're not helping me. You know, I'm sitting in jail. You think I'm fixing to help him? No, I'm not. 
Stephanie had a felony charge hanging over her for more than six years. It was only this year, 2022, when the state finally decided to drop the case. They gave some reasons. They said that they couldn't find a necessary witness, but they also said this witness was, quote, unreliable. So the case was dropped just weeks before this podcast was set to launch. Stephanie blames Deputy Sloan for a lot of what happened. But ultimately, she said the buck stopped with Sheriff Cecil Cantrell. I feel like Cecil knew everything. He, I think he, he's like very corrupt to me. I don't, I mean, I'm not- I could never forget this one thing Stephanie said to me about how the sheriff was on the news more than the weatherman. You know, you've seen more, you've seen more him on the news than you've seen anybody else. Then you've seen the daily weather, hell. You know what I'm saying? Like he was always on the news when all of his stuff spread out on the table all the time. Before I set out to interview Cecil Cantrell, I spent a lot of time researching his background. Handcuffs being slapped on left and right is why Sheriff Cecil Cantrell says it's a great day in Monroe County. That meant watching a lot of old TV clips where he's describing all these drug busts. Put 10 drug dealers out of business last night. As you can see, we got money, quite a bit of drugs. Everyone I talked to mentioned how much he craved media attention. We picked up people last night and yesterday. We had, at this morning, we had 16 already locked up besides what we picked up today. So it's a growing number. That he knew the drug busts were an easy way to get headlines. I don't have a numbers count. I'm going to say over 30. We're probably looking for another 40. To get votes, especially around election time. When you lock up a drug dealer, he's usually trading stolen merchandise for drugs. And if you take his money, his vehicles, and his drugs, you're putting him out of business. You sell drugs here in Monroe County, going to jail. Our office will hunt you down. But I also learned that away from TV cameras, there was a different side to him. Sheriff Cantrell could be brutal, not just to suspected drug offenders, but to his own employees. He demanded loyalty, especially when it came to his campaign. But let me make you aware of something. That's the only way you have a job. You sit on the fence. You know what? You set up on the fence, and old Humpty Dumpty will have a fall. It hurts. You dead gum right, it hurts. Sheriff Cantrell won that re-election in November 2015, just days after the deadly no-knock raid at Ricky Keaton's home. But that didn't stop the sheriff from berating employees who didn't support him. When you want that job out here at the schools, or you want that job in this jail. And I'll make it happen for you. What did you do for me? Nothing. He held a meeting weeks after the election and threatened to fire people or force them to quit. Part of this recording leaked on Facebook, and we obtained a copy of the full 16 minutes. The sheriff's pursuit of power is ultimately what brought him down. Well, the drama surrounding a local sheriff's office takes an unexpected turn. Sheriff Cantrell was waging his second re-election campaign in 2019 when things began to publicly unravel, but for a different reason than anything we've covered so far. 
The state auditor's office is accusing him of authorizing inmate labor to construct political campaign signs. What happened is that a video surfaced weeks before the primary showing inmates at the county jail building Sheriff Cantrell's campaign signs. After the sheriff lost the primary, the state auditor said using inmate labor this way was illegal. But a county prosecutor never charged Sheriff Cantrell. Instead, with about four months left in office, he resigned. We begin tonight with breaking news out of Monroe County, where Sheriff Cecil Cantrell has resigned. His resignation comes just two weeks after he was defeated in the primary election. Cecil Cantrell had moved on, but so many people in Monroe County are still struggling in the aftermath. So many residents believed these drug raids were part of larger abuses by law enforcement. But I wanted to know, did these raids actually make a difference when it came to the drug issues I kept hearing the sheriff talk about on the news? It's really hard to get a true measure of a county's drug problem. A lot of fatal overdoses go unreported. But I looked at some data from the CDC And in his first year as sheriff in 2012, the county saw a decrease in the overdose death rate. But that didn't last very long. Over the rest of Sheriff Cantrell's time in office, from 2013 until 2019, the rate of fatal overdoses increased nearly 50%. That outpaced the state's average rate. I had several pages worth of questions for Sheriff Cantrell and for judge folks who had given the sheriff's office the go-ahead to keep breaking down doors. I wanted to ask about accusations that these raids weren't about keeping people safe, that they were about money and power. And to this day, people like Wanda, Robbie, and Benji believed no one had been held accountable. First, we were going to try and find the sheriff. I, I'm hopeful that some will talk, but I fear either they won't be home or they won't want to talk to us. But I don't know, the sheriff, the Cecil's no longer there, so... I was driving on a highway headed to the outskirts of Aberdeen, a city in Monroe County. That's where Sheriff Cantrell lives. I was with audio producer Rena Flores. What are you most interested in learning from the sheriff? All of the things. Um, if he has any defense for Sloan. We didn't call ahead of time. It felt like we had one go at this, so we just went to his house. right off this main road here. We pulled into a long gravel driveway surrounded by tall, skinny trees that swayed in the wind. There was a huge beige barn to the left. And the house was off a main road, so there was a lot of traffic going by. All right, I'm gonna go. Good luck. Thank you. I grabbed a notebook and a folder with my questions and went to the front door. I knocked a few times and Sheriff Cantrell's wife let me inside. I introduced myself as a reporter for the Washington Post and told Sheriff Cantrell that I was interested in talking to him about his time as sheriff. 
I explained that we were doing a project on law enforcement and accountability. Sheriff Cantrell was happy to sit down, but he quickly added that he couldn't talk about any specific cases. At the time, the Ricky Keaton lawsuit was scheduled to go to trial in a few weeks. The sheriff was wearing a T-shirt and jeans and had paint all over his hands and clothes. He looked thinner and more frail than the videos I'd seen on the news. He's in his 70s. Uh, thank you so much for having us. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. What's uh, a good spot? I suggested that we go outside on his porch. I got Rena from the car and introduced everyone. Thanks for, for chatting with <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, we got him sure. in the middle of a paint job. But just, you know, you just got me working on the house, you know. He sat down on a love seat and leaned back comfortable. And we started talking about his time in office. What were the biggest um, issues that you saw facing the county that you thought you could help improve? Well, number one, I thought I think that a, a sheriff or two, or any elected official, should be accessible to the people. He eagerly shared details about his accomplishments as sheriff: hiring good deputies, recruiting confidential informants, putting drug dealers behind bars. I decided if this county was going to be cleaned up, that it had to start with the sheriff. Nobody had ever cleaned this county up. I'm talking about nobody. And I got me some good deputies, and we went to work. We worked day and night. I worked, honestly, seven days a week. The thugs, the people that are... Are, that don't believe in law enforcement, that steal, that steal while you're at work, steal your trailers or steal your breaking your houses, steal your guns, steal your furniture, steal your TVs. Uh, these people, most of them were drug addicts. The sheriff leaned forward toward the edge of his seat. So what I did, I decided, well, we're going to clean her up, boys. He began pointing his finger at me. And we did. Ma'am, we cleaned this county up. Are you listening to me? I was listening. And I hope the sheriff would talk about no-knocks, on what reasons he had to use them versus knocking on someone's door and announcing police had a search warrant. One of the other areas we're looking at, too, had to deal with warrants. And after the Breonna Taylor case last year, like looking at no-knock warrants. And so I was curious about how, whether or not you found that to be I guess whether you found that to be effective and why, like, law enforcement views it as, like, an important tool in there. Well, like I say, I can't answer that question right now because of litigation probably that's going to ha be happening or going on now. Well, can, without getting into any specific cases, I was wondering just, like, as an overall broad, like, policy and as someone in a leadership position, like, how did— Well, let me say it like this. If the law provides that no-not warrant, and that's what the law says, that's what I'm for. If they say, we, we don't need no, the law, if they pass a law and you can't do that anymore, then I'm for that. What are the, what are the... But the judge is the one that decides whether it's a no-not warrant or not. Not the law enforcement officer. Right. The law enforcement requests it, and then the judge gets to he decide. Makes it, he, he makes that determination. What um and so in terms of the like overseeing the warrants, would people come to you for approval, or they got to decide like what kind of warrant they were going to go get, like a judge to sign? 
Well, we get I mean, ma'am, you get warrants from a judge on a, practically a daily basis. I mean more for, I'm sorry, I, I should have been more clear. Like with, when it comes to some of the drug busts and things that you guys were doing, like did, your, did you have to sign off on them? Like whether if someone was gonna do a no-knock or did they- I the, can't answer that. The deputies get to decide. I couldn't answer that and give you an honest answer. I couldn't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't go into that. Because of- I just can't. Okay. Sheriff Cantrell was shaking his head and starting to look agitated. I'd been asking him about no-knock warrants for several minutes. And you have no, like, idea of how often they were used or sort of how frequently? I couldn't, I couldn't answer that and give you an honest answer. Okay, that's fine. I appreciate you saying that. Um, so did you, I guess I was curious too, like, Can did I you, say that? No, these are my questions. <laughs> we were sitting about two feet away. And then the sheriff reached his arm out and made an actual grab for the notes in my lap. (laughs) I promise I'll get through them. Um, I want to know. You know what you're doing? You're interrogating me. Oh, I don't think so. I'm trying to have an interview. You want to ask me some questions? You can. I mean, I want to see that paper. Oh, this, this is my work. I can't give you my work. I've had plenty of tense interviews. People shutting doors on me, hanging up on me, but. I've never had someone try to grab the questions away from me. After a moment, Sheriff Cantrell shifted back in his seat. I think we better end this where it's at, because I don't, I don't feel like that. I, I feel like that you're interrogating me, and I don't, I don't, I, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't understand why you'd be doing this. I don't. I mean, I, I tried to explain. So we're looking at, you know, law enforcement and accountability. We have a big series that we've been working on. And some of the stories I've been working on are around sheriff. Let me see some... your card. Oh, absolutely. I handed him my Washington Post business card. He put his elbows on his knees and studied the card. Then he tucked it in his pocket and sat upright. Okay. Um. So I was curious if you went along um, on any of these drug busts. I can't. I, I can't answer those questions. I can't. In terms of just generally, you don't want to. Okay. I pivoted to another crucial part of my investigation into the deadly raid at Ricky Keaton's trailer. I needed to ask about the allegations of extortion and sexual assault against Deputy Eric Sloan just weeks before the raid. One of the areas that we've been looking at with some of these um, stories is just um, looking at issues when there's misconduct among deputies and how leadership handles it. Um, and how... I don't know of any misconduct of any deputies, ma'am. So you never had to deal with any misconduct at all of deputies? Well, you know, I don't. You know, that's, that's I'm not sheriff anymore. Yeah. And I don't want I don't want to go into that. I guess one of the cases that I was looking into had to deal with Eric Sloan, and so I was interested. My understanding was that he had been accused of misconduct, and I was trying to understand. Ma'am, I don't how. know anything about that. I mean, I I if he did something wrong, I don't know anything about it. You haven't heard anything about it. Well, I mean. <laughs> You know, you hear 
not, not I'm not I'm not going I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. I don't think that would be. Uh, I I don't know. What's your question about him? Yeah, I mean, well, so one of the things I was wondering is like when you have a. So my understanding is there were some misconduct allegations, and I was trying to understand when that happens. Like, would would the department itself investigate or to get think hands anything off? Was ever. I don't know of anything was ever proven that he ever did wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know of anything. I pressed him on the allegations against Eric Sloan made in the fall of 2015, allegations that were known to the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and the FBI. I mean, I, I don't know what he did wrong. If he did anything, I don't even know of anything he did wrong. Sheriff Cantrell's answers conflicted with his sworn testimony. In a deposition, the sheriff said he knew about allegations against Eric Sloan and he was aware the state was investigating. Even Deputy Sloan admitted in his deposition that he talked to the sheriff about them. But when I talked to Sheriff Cantrell, he denied knowing about any accusations. Instead, he kept saying he wouldn't talk about specific cases. I mean, I can't, I can't talk about cases. Okay. I mean, that's unethical. And is that the Ricky Caton shooting is also one you can't talk about? or I'm not going to talk about any of that. My last remaining questions for Sheriff Cantrell focused on his relationship with Ricky. Going into the interview, we understood they knew each other quite well. Can you talk about, like, your relationship with him or if you knew him or stuff not related to the, the Ma'am, shooting? I'm not going to go into that. I'm not, I'm not going to go into any case like that. I, I can't do that. Is there anything you can say about sort of, um, you know, your relationship with Ricky or anything like that, or you can't, or his family, even not Ricky? All I know is they're nice people. I don't know anything about them, basically. I want to stop here for a minute because sitting there on his porch, I kept thinking about that secret recording of Sheriff Cantrell that Ricky's family made hours after his death. At this point in our reporting, we didn't yet have permission from our sources to share this tape. But I want to go back to it for a moment now. Believe me, I respect him a lot more than you even know. I, I know. I know y'all were friends. No, we were closer than friends. Well, I mean, when you have a friend like that, you don't do that. Well, you just, you don't understand. You're hurting. No, I mean, I'm not hurting. I do understand. No, no, I know really. Ricky did bad things. I know he I'm, did. Okay, and I'm sorry that he's, I, I'm sorry this has happened. I know you are. Matter of fact, more than you'll ever know. I just don't want anything else. It hurts me as bad as it hurts a lot of people in this room. Because he's, and I know all your family. I know you do. And I know Steve Keaton, and I know Mr. and Ms. Keaton. I know the whole family, and they're just wonderful people. I just don't and I knew your things. mama, and I, I knew your dad. And they were wonderful friends of mine and good people. Went to church with them. The sheriff was talking about how close they were and what a loss it was. But to me, he was basically calling them strangers. There were a lot of other questions that I didn't get a chance to put to Cecil Cantrell 
that I had learned over the course of my reporting, including allegations that he and deputies pocketed money, drugs, and other property from drug raids. After this sit-down, I tried reaching him on the phone, but his wife said our conversation was done. I also put these accusations in a certified letter to him, but I never heard back. This was one of our last exchanges on his porch. Do you feel like you like made a contribution to Monroe County? Did you make this a better? I did the best I could. Do you feel proud of what has happened here? And, and is the... I, feel, I, I did the best I could. And I done it in a, I tried to do my job in a Christian manner. No-knock warrants still happen in Monroe County, but apparently they go down a little differently than they did under Sheriff Cantrell. And I got a taste of how things worked before and after. You can stand right there, you can stand over there. I okay. assure you. I was standing in a vacant house with some members of the Monroe County SWAT team. My colleague Rena was outside during this drill. This is what she heard. An enormous crash pierced the silence. There was some yelling, but from the inside, I couldn't understand what they were saying. It wasn't until the door fell down that I could clearly hear Sheriff's office. By that time, the SWAT team was already racing around the house. This drill was with Kevin Crook, the new Monroe County Sheriff. His team was showing us how the Sheriff's office used to conduct raids, the old way of doing things. Sheriff Crook had been trying to change how deputies approach no-knocks, entering houses more slowly and methodically, and this next part of the drill was meant to show that. With Cecil Cantrell out of office, I was curious to see how Sheriff Crook was running the department. When I come in, basically my initial speech to everybody was, you know, everything that you've been doing, we're going to pretty much do the opposite of, you know, because it's just a different set of priorities. And what I see is priority. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get reelected. I'm, I'm trying to run this department in a way. I knew a sheriff could set the tone for his police force. A new head could change everything about how it operates, who works there and how they train. But for residents of Monroe County, it seems impossible to move forward without looking at the past. Sheriff Crook, a former deputy and judge, was making changes all across the department. He rejoined the North Mississippi Narcotics Unit, the regional group that Sheriff Cantrell had left. He made sure all his deputies were certified and let go of some hires by the old sheriff. Sheriff Crook took over a department facing allegations of misconduct and abuse. But Deputy Eric Sloan had moved on. Shortly after the deadly raid at Ricky Keaton's trailer in 2015, 
Deputy Sloan resigned from the sheriff's office. Just weeks before the raid, he had been under investigation for Stephanie Herring's allegations. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation told me they couldn't corroborate them. But that wasn't the end of it. So I mentioned a memo last episode. It was from the second-in-command at the sheriff's office. And it was about this meeting he attended in another county in late September of 2015. There were a bunch of important people there. Lawyers from the district attorney's office, a state investigator, and several officials from the U.S. Justice Department, including a deputy marshal and an assistant U.S. attorney. At this meeting, it was decided that an FBI agent would seek permission to open a public corruption case involving Deputy Sloan. But then, sources told me just one day after this meeting took place, state and county law enforcement notified the FBI that Deputy Sloan had found out that he was being investigated and that Stephanie was cooperating with law enforcement. This was really unusual. One official involved in the discussions told me the case was, quote, burned in the beginning. The official added that they believe deputies in the sheriff's office tipped off Eric Sloan, adding, what the heck? How did this happen? The FBI apparently didn't move forward after that. The agency wouldn't answer questions about the meeting, the memo, or what happened. What I do know is the sheriff's office at some point asked Deputy Sloan to take a polygraph test like Stephanie had, but he declined. Deputy Sloan was never charged with any crime. After the Ricky Keaton shooting, he left the sheriff's office. He also resigned from his other job as a police chief in a small town a few months later. Deputy Sloan then started working for a railroad company in Alabama. And again, he's never acknowledged the messages I've left for him. I managed to reach his wife, and she said they declined to comment. But I'd recently learned that Deputy Sloan has close ties to the new sheriff. They knew each other growing up, and Kevin Crook actually helped him get his first job at the sheriff's office. I wondered what Sheriff Crook now thought about all these accusations. Um, You know, I I feel like he's been the scapegoat. You know, I knew he wanted to to be in law enforcement. Um, And I think he still wants to be, but, um, you know, it's... It's in your heart to do it. It's in your heart, you know, and you you can do something else, but you're never really doing what you feel like you were put on this earth to do. And um, but whether he would come back, you know, after all this is said and done or not, I don't, I don't know. He's been through a lot. Have you asked him to come back? No, uh, we haven't talked about it. Um, He. He's just talked to me about, you know, some of the stuff he's had to to go through. And so if he came to you and said he does want to come back on the force, would you hire him back? Oh, we would. We definitely could talk about it, you know. Um, I worry about him. PTSD. and uh... Sheriff Crook defended Deputy Sloan without hesitation. 
He has the authority to hire him back for the sheriff's office, and he's willing to consider it. I walked through the accusations against Deputy Sloan from lawsuits. One of them involved the girlfriend of Unsell Park, Cynthia Fuller. I asked about Stephanie's complaint to state investigators and the teenager who appeared before a grand jury over allegations of sexual misconduct. I wanted to see if Sheriff Crook had heard about them. He had, and he kind of dismissed all of them. There's, you know, there's all these different allegations that have come out. There was, um, you know, the ones from Stephanie Herring where she was accusing him of extortion and sexual misconduct. And there was Cynthia Fuller who was talking about various racist allegations, but also false charges. And there were other allegations that came out from that teenager that was at your church. And when I had asked you, like, why, why do you think all these different people are, are making these allegations that who don't even know each other and haven't necessarily crossed paths? I mean, they're a drug user lies, right? I mean, they lie and they lie and they lie. And they lie. I'm not saying they, I'm not calling them. I'm saying by nature. I'm not naming anybody specific. But, I mean, they're, they're used to lying. They lie to us. They lie to their parents. They, they lie to themselves. You know, it's just, you know, what they do. And, uh, I mean, they put out some god-awful stuff on me, you know, that some of it got back around to me and heard. And, and, you know, he's no different. He got all kind of stuff put out on him. During our conversation, Sheriff Crook didn't have many kind words for Cecil Cantrell. Sheriff Crook had heard about the complaints over the property and money seized, but he didn't think there was anything more to look into. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I would have. I would have definitely, you know, looked into it. Mm-hmm. There's some things we had to look into when I came in the office, you know, but uh, I don't. None of us, none of those guys out there, and, and I would hope none of the people that, that work for me, uh, like a dirty cop, could support or stand by one if there was one. You know, I mean, we all want it. We all want to honor the profession and uh, do it with integrity and uh, respect. By the time I arrived in Mississippi, Sheriff Crook had earned glowing reviews. Everyone raved about him. People said he was honest and transparent, that he was trying to make things better. But I wondered what residents would think about the sheriff being open to talking to Eric Sloan about coming back on the force. I didn't know how that fit in with Sheriff Crook's interest in making drug raids safer, in doing things differently than Cecil Cantrell. On the one hand, here was Sheriff Crook making bold moves in the department. It's not like there were changes in local legislation to ban or restrict no-knocks. Sheriff Crook was looking ahead and trying to make change from the inside. He wasn't so focused on the past, on understanding the enduring legacy of these dangerous raids made with questionable warrants. That no matter how many policies and procedures changed, there were still people who felt like they could never trust the sheriff's office again. And that didn't just go back to Cecil Cantrell. There was also the man who kept taking out a pen and signing those warrants. That was Judge Robert Folks. 
and we still had to talk to him. After the break, why the judge kept approving warrant after warrant. Ricky's daughter, Robbie, places a lot of the blame for her father's death on the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. They ordered the raid. They shot the bullets that killed her father. But Sheriff Cantrell and his deputies couldn't have carried out these drug raids without Judge Robert Folks. For deputies, he was the go-to for no-knock warrants. He handed them out like post-it notes. Here, you get one, you get one, you get one. You know, And we even went to the courthouse, and we pulled all the warrants for the past two years from Monroe County, and they were all no-knock search warrants. I had talked with Judge Folks briefly on the phone before coming to Mississippi. He seemed open to sitting down, so Rena and I decided to drop by and knock on his door. When we pulled into Robert Folks' driveway, I saw tractors and horses in a barn across from the house. His wife pointed to the vast fields on the far side of the property and told me that he was out there cutting the grass. We were just hoping to catch you for a few minutes. We're in town just for a few days and heading out. Um, we had t- I know there are certain things you can't talk to us about, and that's totally fine, and you'll tell me when you can't, but I was hoping we could just borrow, like, a little bit of your time, if sure. that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Are you comfortable here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I agree. Okay, uh, cool. Rena and I stood sweating under the Mississippi sun and began asking judge folks questions as he sat on his green tractor. And we're out in a field, too. You're yeah. You're on your tractor. <laughs> yeah. I'm out bush hogging uh, uh, around the road and the edge of the... Uh, feel before I get into my pasture and all. Yeah, just. Judge Folks is now retired. He ran in 2019, but lost his seat on the bench. Now he spends most of his time in the fields or at a Baptist church where he's a pastor. He loves singing too and gave us this cassette tape he recorded years ago. I'm a, I hear In town, Judge Folks has a reputation as a devout Christian. In the sheriff's office, he had a reputation built on his availability. Deputies could reach Judge Folks 24-7. He even slept with a phone by his bed in case they needed him. Uh, most of the search warrants, most of the things that were signed, I signed. I was accessible. Uh, I'd go to the jail and do them. They'd come to the house, you know, and, and do them just wherever because you were accessible. And the weekends, you know, if you find me, I'm working uh, 24-7, 365 days a year. There's the way I looked at it. They'd be waiting in the churchyard for me when I come out, or I might be eating at the steakhouse, and they'd just come in, and we'd just do business and, you know, go over everything. But they'd always call me and talk to me. Judge Folks dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and later got his GED. He never attended law school. Like a lot of others in this area, he had been in the furniture business for years before getting elected as a judge in 1999. 
he described a one-week training that helped him prepare for the bench. A college ran the training. The judge received a set of law books and instructions for how to look things up. They taught us about probable cause, and uh, they taught us about the uh, warrants, and uh, they taught us pretty well everything in in there that you, that, that in the basics you'd have to have. And uh, then, uh, like, say, in the warrants and stuff like that that you sign, of course, you sign a, a people don't realize that you sign a G in warrants. I mean, some days I'd sit down and sign 80 to 100 warrants. He said he got additional training over the years, but I was surprised to hear about the preparation or lack of preparation to take on such a powerful position. Judge folks isn't unique in this way. There are many judges and magistrates in the U.S. who haven't attended law school and are tasked with approving no-knocks and making other critical decisions. And judge folks had no reservations when it came to approving no-knocks. He thought they were the safest approach for police. He explained that the element of surprise was necessary for these drug busts. And in his eyes, the fallout was minimal. But if you look at those things, the element of surprise is the best thing that I can tell you on a no-knock warrant. And if there's nothing there, all you got is a tore-up door. I asked him about a warrant that seemed to rely on false information. This was the one for Benji Edwards' home. In that case, a confidential source told the sheriff he'd seen drugs in Benji's house about a year earlier, not within the 72 hours listed in the affidavit. What's the problem when you have to be confronted with police are testifying that something's true in an affidavit, and what do you do if it's not? Well, uh, you punish the officer. I mean, you know, that, and, and the thing about it is that shouldn't be left to the judge. The sheriff should take care of his own people. And if he's, uh, if he's uh, misinformed and gave fraudulent information to him, then he needs to be dismissed. Uh, because, I mean, you, a sheriff is no better than his people. And if they're going to do that, you can't, you can't put in any trust in them. Certainly as a judge, you can't trust somebody that's got a reputation of doing that. I knew it was a long shot to get the judge to open up about Ricky, but I hoped that we could find an in. Can you talk at all about the Ricky Keaton case, or even just like, no. did you know? No, I, I can't. I can't. I can't say anything about it because it's still open. Uh, part of it's still open, and uh, uh, matter of fact, they're going to have court on it pretty soon. My understanding. Without sort of talking about that case, I'm wondering like. That must feel like a, that's a big event to happen. It is. See, it's, it's a shock. It's a shock. How did that, if at all, like weigh on you or in your job, look moving forward after that point? Like, did it all make you, I don't know, pause or what? I mean, after that, of course, any time that, you know, after something like that, you, you want to but just double check and be sure that you're sure about what you're going to do and, and how it goes. Of course, at any, any one of the search warrants I signed could have been the same situation. But did it stop me from signing the no-night warrants? No. Because I still think it was the safest because look how many we done with the no-knock and didn't have any problem and were successful in 
uh, bringing a lot of people to justice that were uh, big drug dealers. I know you're obviously a man of a lot of faith. I'm wondering, like, after the Ricky Keaton death, like, did you pray on that? And what sort of... Well, sure, I prayed for his family and all those that were involved in it, and it, as, as well as I did for uh, many people. Do I hate that he got killed? Yes. Could it have been avoided? Yes. But I don't think it had as much to do with the warrant. Uh, you know, we have to make decisions. And sometimes that decision is not the best decision. That's about all I can say about that on that. Well, we've taken so much of your time. You've been really generous. Thank you for being hanging out on this tractor. Oh, yeah. Letting us hang out in your field. We left Judge Folks on his tractor after that. Judge Folks had pointed to law enforcement needing to be accountable for what they asked for in warrants. The old sheriff, Cecil Cantrell, said it was all on the judge. None of this was good enough for Ricky's daughter, Robbie. Robbie's fight to find out what happened to Ricky and the battle to hold those responsible has completely absorbed her life. So you have sat in on every deposition? Yes, ma'am. Why? I want to know. I want to see what kind of inconsistency I can find between their lies and what they say in their statement of facts, and I just need to know everything that's said. Years later, there's still so many things she doesn't know. Like, what happened to the images on the cameras from Ricky's trailer that disappeared after the raid? The Monroe County Sheriff's Office had taken them before handing them over to the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation. When a state investigator reviewed the images from the cameras, he said it appeared that someone had used a shirt or hand to cover the one facing the door of the trailer, quote, moments before the shooting. My colleague Rena and I looked at these images and saw what the investigator noted. There are no pictures of deputies shooting, no pictures of Ricky getting shot, but there are images of the investigators walking around when the sun came up. And Robbie also wonders why deputies thought they had the authority to break down her father's door in the first place. All the warrant paperwork she showed me was a mess of contradictions. So for one, deputies never asked for a no-knock raid in the affidavit. But then, the judge signed a warrant that contradicted that. The warrant said they did ask for a no-knock. And nowhere on the search warrant does it say deputies had the authority to execute a no-knock raid. No permission to skip over the knocking part. The details of this are important because it's part of what Robbie and Monroe County are fighting over in this lawsuit. Ricky's daughter, Robbie, knew going against the sheriff's office in Monroe County was an uphill battle. Holding law enforcement accountable meant challenging powerful people in the small community. There had been little to no news coverage about Ricky's killing since 2016. After we'd been reporting for months last year, The county said a local newspaper found out about records we had obtained and requested the identical records. They then published stories about Eric Sloan and no-knock raids that Robbie says led to online attacks against her family. 
Robbie has thought more than once about giving up. There's nothing I can do today that'll change what happened that day, so I have to let it go. And so that's kind of how I've I've tried to p- p- literally put it in a box, and I hadn't messed with it or anything until you and I started talking because it did drive me crazy. And then you know Jim- she filed this wrongful death lawsuit in 2016. Lawyers representing Monroe County and Eric Sloan tried to get the case thrown out before trial. They argued in a motion that deputies properly obtained the no-knock based on concerns over the drugs, along with the cameras and dogs at Ricky's. And they claimed Deputy Sloan and others were justified in their use of deadly force after Ricky shot his pellet gun. But a judge rejected that motion, and now the case is about to have its day in court. It's one of the only wrongful death lawsuits involving a no-knock raid nationwide that appears to be heading to trial. Between all the hearings, Robbie has barely had time for her kids, her husband, herself. She went into debt and started seeing a therapist and taking medication for anxiety. Robbie says the county has tried to settle, but she's rejected the offers. This was never about the money. It was about having the truth come out. I'd rather go to trial and it be heard than to gain any money from this. Um, I feel like it needs to be out there. I feel like the people that were involved that tried to hide this heinous crime that they they did, they need to be persecuted for what they did. Um, I'd rather, and I know my father would rather me fight it to the death than just to give up and take money. When police offer to settle wrongful death lawsuits, the money is meant to compensate families for their loss. But often, it has the effect of silencing questions about what really happened. Robbie was hoping to go to trial in 2020 when the pandemic hit. It was finally scheduled for last August. Subpoenas for witnesses were served. Jury instructions were typed up. Robbie booked a hotel and took time off of work. And then... Days before jury selection, one of the county's lawyers got COVID. The judge pushed the trial to September. So Robbie booked another hotel. She got her black filing cabinet with wheels ready. And again, days before, Monroe County asked for another delay. The judge agreed and moved it all the way to the beginning of this year. Robbie called me the night that happened. It's just an emotional roller coaster because, you know, you think this is going somewhere and then it just stops. In the beginning of our conversation, she remained as defiant as ever. What what did these kinds of delays say to you about the ability for victims' families to get justice for deaths like Ricky's? There's none. I mean, there's, I mean, it's just heartbreak. In the meantime, do you ever worry about more no-knock raids happening in the county? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, not just in Monroe County. Um, It happens every day, everywhere, you know. Over the last year, I've talked to Robbie for hours and hours. She always spoke with passion, and she was unflinching. But it was different on this day in September just a few weeks before the anniversary of her dad's death. And do you do anything to mark kind of the anniversary of 
you know, I know it's, I guess it'll be the sixth, sixth one, I guess, coming up in October. Um, I used to, um, I would go down there and it's been, it's just discouraging. So I try not to. I mean, because it changed my life. It changed my kids' life. It, I mean, it changed everything. And it's, it has took a long time for my family to kind of get back into a normal routine. To say the least, after what happens, like something like that happens. But for us to have some normalcy, and it's not fair for them to see me just bogged down all the time. Um, so I, I try to, I even put my emotions in that box and I don't, I don't bring it out because I think this is one of the first times I've ever really got emotional (laughs) talking with you about it. Um, I just try to put it away and I mean, I know that's not healthy, but it's one of the ways, you know, it's done. It's over with. It's it's through. There's nothing I can do today that will change what happened then. But I can change how it affects me now and my family. So I, I kind of just try to set that aside and move forward and try to be happy in the life that I have right now. Just weeks before this episode was going to come out, I was getting ready to pack my bags to go back to Mississippi for the trial. Then, Robbie's lawyer got COVID. So six years after Ricky Keaton's death, the judge pushed the trial again to May. Next time on Broken Doors, we leave Monroe County, Mississippi and head to Louisiana where another family is seeking justice after a fatal no-knock raid was approved with just the click of a button. While the technology certainly speeds up the process, what gets lost sometimes is the due process in that speed. Broken Doors is hosted by Jen Abelson and Nicole Dunka. It's produced by Rena Flores, Sabi Robinson, and Lena Muhammad. It's edited by Renita Jablonski and David Fallis, with additional editing by Theo Balcom and Sarah Childress. Original music, sound design, mixing, and theme by Ted Muldoon. All the episodes in the series are out now. To listen and subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors or your favorite podcast app. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back with more stories from The Washington Post. 